All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by Peter Bookfar. Peter is the Chief Investment Officer at the Weekly Financial Group and the author of the book report. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so a lot that we could talk about here. Uh, maybe we could just start sort of from uh, 10,000 feet. We had a lot of uh, data to digest, you know, economic data to digest last week from the ECB to the FOMC to the economic cost index. I would love to maybe just start at a super high level and get your sort of macro framework. Like, how are you interpreting uh, what's going on? Well, a lot of conflicting data out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the ISM manufacturing number, uh, confirmed that uh, at least the manufacturing part of the U.S. economy is in a recession. Then you have the services com- uh, component of the combined uh, that bounced back, but ten, only 10 out of 18 indus- industries surveyed saw growth. That's the least uh, in many years if you don't include COVID. And then S&P Global's PMI for the U.S. showed the uh, both manufacturing and services contracting for seven straight months. Uh, you had the payroll number that was blockbuster, but then you had the, that PMI said that uh, hiring in the service sector has ground to almost at a halt. Uh, you had the employment components of ISM, both manufacturing and services, around 50, implying really no net change in hiring. Uh, you have continuing claims that are elevated. You have jobless claims that are low. Uh, so putting it all together, it's, it's somewhat confusing. But there was something quirky, certainly, in that payroll number. Uh, ADP, which measures the private sector and actually has uh, uh, payroll receipts in hand, they said that uh, the private sector in January only hired a net 106,000 uh, versus north of 400 in the private sector in the BLS. Uh, the household survey within the BLS report, if you take out the population adjustment, only 84,000 jobs were created. So it, it, it added a whole uh, mix of confusion. I think net-net, after a steady decline in interest rates, the belief that the Fed is almost done raising interest rates, uh, the payroll number was enough to see a rather quick reversal uh, in, in short-term uh, rates in the U.S. to the point where the U.S. two-year uh, has r- risen about 40 basis points in two days, astonishingly, mm. and is back to the highest level since November. So um, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, Peter, I would love to get your sense of how do you interpret that? Because, you know, just to, to preface there, the the blockbuster jobs number that you're referring to was some 519,000, I believe was the number of jobs that we added compared to some 190,000 expected. And, you know, it was just funny to see the market uh, react to this because you had the FOMC on Wednesday. And that's where we got a much more dovish version of Powell that undid some of the work that he did from his Jackson Hole speech back in August, where, okay, we're going to get our 25 basis point rise that the market priced in, but you know he he was softer than many people thought on walking back or, or the ability to kind of talk tough and, and seem very hawkish. The market interpreted that very dovishly, very positively, and then we had a blockbuster jobs number, uh, and and the market quickly re- you know reversed course. And now there are fears that we could overheat the economy, and you know the like like you said the the two year jumped and yields jumped and, and asset prices fell. How did, how did you interpret that that little uh, whipsaw? Well, the thing with Powell is you know, the, the market it was doing going into that press conference. Now, each statement has been only a slight tweak versus the prior statement. So that means that the press conference is now center stage for market moving type of news or commentary from Powell. Now, 
because we're getting close to these rate hikes, you know, the market is is at this point with inflation slowing down, just looking for any dovish commentary from Powell. Now, Powell came into the press conference full speed ahead. We raised rates. We're going to raise them again. We're going to be tough. We're going to flex our muscles. Yes, inflation's going going down, but we want it to stay down. But then he then he got uh, dovish with talks about disinflation, right. and then really screwed it up at the end when he like sounded ignorant when it came to financial conditions. So of course, the market lacked onto the dovish aspects of that speech, ignored the hawkish, and then you've obviously had that rally. Now Powell speaks. On Tuesday, and he has the opportunity, particularly following the the payroll number, to push back on uh, what the financial markets have done. Uh, he's got every reason to do so, and, and we'll see if he does. You know, Powell's legacy is not going to be determined by where the S and P 500 is. It's not going to be determined by where uh, credit spreads are. It's going to be determined by his fight against inflation how far he gets it to go down, and how much it stays down. So I do think he'll push back. Uh, like I said, he totally fumbled the ball with the financial co- uh, conditions commentary. Uh, he either is not paying attention to markets or he just uh, just couldn't get his words straight. And when, when he goes into these press conferences, he's got a stack of papers, which are prepared answers to reporter questions. Mm-hmm. And then, and then he, uh, he sort of speaks spontaneously otherwise. So when you have that, you're not giving a, a, a free-flowing type of answer to, to all these questions. You're like debating, do I, do I read from the prepared script or do I talk off the cuff? Mm. And you know, I guess he didn't have the prepared script for the financial conditions question and um, screwed that up. But I think either way, you know, rates are going to remain sticky here. Now, if we go into a deep recession... Uh, you know, the Fed will start to cut. But uh, in their eyes, they're very far from that. And, uh, you know, living with uh, a Fed funds rate that's going to be north of 4%, around 5% for a period of time uh, is not an environment that many market participants are used to. And it's not an environment that the U.S. economy is used to over the past 15 years. Mm. Peter, can you, just for, for folks who might not have been following as closely, can you talk about that financial conditions component that Powell referred to? Why did he mess that up so badly? Well, let's take a step back. Uh, it was Greenspan that sort of married monetary policy with the financial markets, married uh, economic activity with the financial markets, and out came the Fed put. Now, back, now fast forward last December at the Powell press conference, Powell said, our policies work their way through financial conditions, either tightening them through wider credit spreads, lower multiples on stocks, or it eases them, vice versa. Well, the, there, there are a few different financial condition indices. Bloomberg has one, Chicago Fed has one, Goldman Sachs has one that has a bunch of different inputs, whether it's credit spreads or the VIX or stock prices and so on. Uh, and it sort of measures market conditions, implying that the easier the market conditions are, then more companies can get funding, maybe there can be more IPOs, blah, 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 can lead to uh, quicker economic activity, a wealth effect, and potentially faster inflation, and, and the reverse being the case. So at the press conference, he was asked about 
the easing of financial conditions of late. And he said, well, financial conditions are no different than when where they were in mid-December, the last time we met. Meanwhile, uh, the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index was at the easiest since February of 2022, before the Fed started raising interest rates. Mm. And then he kept saying, well, they're tighter than they were last year, but they're not tighter. So he he just answered incorrectly. And like I said, I don't know if that was ignorantly or he just didn't wasn't in the mood to push back or is looking at something else. I don't know. But um, I think he should have read the room a lot better than he did and, and paid attention to what's going on in markets much better than he has. Mm. So. You know, this is where, I, you know, at the risk of editorializing, my sort of read on the situation was this was Powell's press conference where I first kind of looked at it and thought, this is, I think he he thinks that he might get his soft landing. Soft landing was, you know, kind of, that was almost like a naughty word, right, last year where, you know, you would never believe that there would seem like a very, very low chance of that actually happening. It's only been pulled off twice, I think, in the last uh, century or so, uh, once in the mid-80s and the other in the, the mid-90s. Uh, now, what you're starting to hear is kind of the rising pitter-patter and chatter of pundits that, hey, we might actually get our soft landing. American households look very strong. Uh, measure of you know financial stress, as measured by credit spreads and a whole bunch of other things, actually looks very low. The unemployment number is still historically low. Janet Yellen had some comments about that this week. So you're starting to see a rising kind of... Um, groundswell of voices calling for a soft landing. And in my mind, when I watched Powell give this presser, I thought to myself, maybe this is him believing that he's going to get what he's really wanted this whole time, which is the soft landing. Is Did you read that a similar way? And then also, what do you think is the possibility? Like, are we going to get a soft landing? What's your sort of prognosis? Well, the, the, first of all, it, it's, it's more nuanced of a soft landing, hard landing. Mm. Um, because also a soft landing implies a soft recovery. So would you want a soft landing and a soft recovery of GDP growth of 1% like we had in 2022, or do you want a harsh recession and a sharp snapback? Uh, or do you want, or is there potential for just a general malaise? And, and, and this debate is, is, I think is way too premature in us really knowing. And we, we, we've had, call it 15 years of, of interest rates that were a pancake. Mm. And then we went vertical in one year. Okay. So in a interest rate slash borrowing dependent economy, mm-hmm. where it was a lack of savings, but reliance on borrowing that helped to generate economic growth, well, this very higher, well, this, I was going to say very high, but let's just say higher, much higher cost of capital. The economy, every month that goes by and somebody's loan is coming due, that needs to be refinanced in a higher at a higher interest rate. Cash flows get allocated to interest expense as opposed to growth. So the economy is going to get chipped away by this higher cost of capital month after month, quarter over quarter. So for someone to come out and confidently say, oh, we're, we're having a soft landing. Well, the U.S. economy, is, the, the U.S. manufacturing sector is in a recession. The U.S. housing sector is in a recession. So to, to come out and now say, OK, it's a soft landing. Well, maybe. But I, I think we're going to get chipped away here uh, from from higher interest rates that are going to stay elevated for a while. Mm. And um, while we may not have a, uh, a sharp recession, 
I, I think a soft landing is not necessarily a good thing because if, if we go to like, just say zero growth or minus 1% and we rebound to plus 1%, is, is that a good thing too? You know, that, that's sort of just lackluster growth. And that's what I see um, in this kind of environment for a period of time because a higher interest rate environment in an economy that's been very dependent on um, low rates is, is a headwind. Yeah. Uh, and unless rates are going back to zero anytime soon, uh, uh, which maybe they do, but only in a deep recession will they go back to zero. Uh, I, I don't accept, I don't expect any sharp recovery anytime soon. I mean, let's take the auto sector too. So we talked about housing. It's in a recession. You have the auto sector. That's the other interest rate uh, dependent part of the U.S. economy. Well, financing a car right now, a $50,000 car, which is the average price, is, is getting tougher and tougher. And especially when the, the median income in the country is 50 grand. Mm. So you, you have very important parts of the economy that are getting chipped away by this rise in rates. Now, I want to say there's a positive out there, and that's the reopening of China. That's a big positive, I believe. But it's a big positive for China, the Asian region, and mostly Europe. The U.S. doesn't do as much business with China as those areas do. Um, so I don't want to say this is all a negative. Uh, I just think it's 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 the higher cost of capital is more of a, a deterrent to economic growth. But let, let's look at this globally. Just take a step back. Talk about housing again. Uh, we had major housing bubbles in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, parts of Europe, Sweden. Um, a lot of these countries have floating rate mortgages. Uh, the, 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 these, um, this, this, the much higher uh, interest rates in a lot of these countries are, are, are slowing down housing markets in all these different countries. Those are big drivers of economic activity. So it, for someone to say, oh, yeah, it's a soft landing and be confident today. Well, again, we, we, we have a lot of months and quarters and potentially years to come of, of acclimating to a higher rate environment that is just going to slow economic activity. Mm. Hey, everyone. Just want to do a quick shout out to this episode sponsor, Public. Public, most of you guys probably know them. They're a great company. It's an investing platform. They allow you to invest in everything that you might possibly want from individual stocks to ETFs to crypto. And they even have some cool stuff in the alternative space like fractionalized fine art, all that kind of cool stuff. Great company. But two things that I want to call out about them specifically. One, it's everything that you could want to invest in in one spot. If you're like me, I've got kind of my TradFi brokerage set up over here. And then I've got all things crypto and digital assets over here. They don't really talk to each other. It's like an okay setup, but it's not ideal. Public.com fixes that because it's everything that you need all in one place. You have perfect visibility in a company that I trust. Second, and here's something that you should definitely check out. Click the link at the bottom of this page, but they just launched something called Treasury Accounts. Now, not an investing expert. None of this is financial advice, but if you've been good listeners on, on the margin, which I know you have, you know that those treasury yields just keep going up, 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 up. And at the timer for the recording, you can get you know, close to 4.8% in yield from the US government. Now, that's a very attractive proposition. The problem is getting access to that yield is actually really tricky right now. Either have to go through a bank or you have to navigate some ancient government website that looks like it was designed in the 90s. Public fixes all of that and they will even reinvest your bills at maturity, which let's be honest, no, you guys are diligent, but me, I'm lazy. I love that they take that extra step for me. So anyway, it's a great product. Highly recommend that you go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Go to public.com slash on the margin. Again, guys, 
give your friend a little credit here. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and tell them I sent you. Okay, I want to just make sure we come back to the China reopening comment there, but I've got one more question about just rising cost of capital. You know, there's a there's a concept of that I've sort of heard in energy that's important, which is it's the area under the curve that matters, right? Which is usually economies can actually withstand spikes in in energy costs, uh, but because you can bear it for a short period of time, but if you have sustained pricing, right? It's like the area under the curve that really matters because maybe you can withstand the higher energy costs for a small bit of time, but eventually then you start to see more capitulation. I could see the same concept being applied to interest rates, right? Depending on how you finance your business or or whatever. But, you know, is it also an area under the curve thing where, look, if interest rate, depending on how your debt is structured, right? If it's variable rate or fixed, obviously that makes a big, uh, you know, that has a big impact. Um, but, you know, is our interest rates also kind of a variable, like an under the curve thing where the longer you have sustained rates, you know, companies haven't yet adjusted to the new cost of capital? It, it absolutely is. And again, that's because of 15 years of this. And then you go like this for one year. Right. So you go like this and then you stay there. All the debt that was financed here that then gets repriced over the next couple of years at much higher rates, that is itself a form of constant tightening. So the Fed can stop hiking rates today, but just by keeping them there is a form of monetary tightening, just as the reverse. You know, the Fed had something called forward guidance. They said, let's just keep rates at zero for a while. And they thought that was somehow stimulative. Well, this is sort of the reverse of forward guidance. We're going to keep rates high for a while. And that could be a perpetual form of tightening. And, and, And again, because each loan that's coming due, whether it's a or, or getting re- readjusted, whether it's somebody who had a seven-year arm and this year is year seven, mm-hmm. well, that homeowner is going to see uh, a payment shock. Now, hopefully, they've paid down uh, some of their debt. They have higher equity in the home, and maybe it won't be so bad. But for some, it's going to be a rate shock. Uh, if you're if you're in the commercial real estate business, uh, chances are you know you're, you you may have you may not have rent that's going to cover. Uh, any any new debt payments this year that have that that is on a loan that's coming due. Mm. Uh, if you're a business floating rate debt that didn't hedge out, you're allocating more cash flow, as I said earlier, to interest expense. Uh, starting in 2024, 2025, we're going to have a wall of maturities in, in in high yield. A lot of high yield is shorter term in nature. So yes, by having rates higher for longer, all this debt gets repriced at higher levels. Some companies will be able to handle just fine, those with good balance sheets, and those that have taken on too much debt and have gotten over their skis uh, are going to see uh, interest interest expense shock mm. in response to this rate shock, again, after a long period of time of very low financing costs. Yeah. So, Peter, I'll, I'll caveat by saying, you know, I'm not a financial professional here, but one argument that I, that I often hear, right, is, well, the U.S., you know, financial sector or housing or whatever it is, it's much safer than it used to be because there's a lot of fixed rate debt. Well, fixed rate debt doesn't necessarily solve the problem because, forgetting housing for a second, everyone just refinances their debt, right? Paying back your debt is an old-fashioned concept in America these days. Everyone just refis at the end, right? So it seems to me that a fixed rate structure actually just delays the problem. Is that a fair assessment or, or am I, you know... Well, we, we have a combination. You... you those that have fixed rate are mostly bigger companies that had been able to sell um, high yield or investment grade bonds. You know, many the 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 floating rate bank loan uh, sector is 1.4 
trillion dollars. You know, the leverage loan area. That's a lot of money. Uh, that unless you're unless you're hedging parts it out, if you're a company, that's floating rate. That's resetting. Uh, the U.S. government has a trillion dollars of T-bills that are maturing this year that uh, are going to have to get refinanced at much higher rates. So, yeah, if you, if you have fixed rate and you termed it out, you're fine. Um, but even big companies, you listen to a lot of conference calls. You look at or read a bunch of 10Ks or 10Qs. You know, a lot of companies haven't um, termed out 100% of their debt. A lot of these businesses have at least some percentage that's floating rates. And it's cost them. Some treasurers are more have been more conservative than others, terming out more. Some have just assumed rates would just stay low forever, and and really did a poor job on hedging. But uh, I think there are a lot of there's a lot of debt out there that's that's repricing, and a lot of companies that have gotten clipped. Um, again, those that would have good balance sheets, good businesses, good cash flow can handle it. But um, there, there are others that did not. I mean, I I, I keep writing and talking about like the commercial real estate market because anybody that did a deal prior to 2022 you know was probably whether they were doing new construction or buying an existing building you know their 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 rate on that loan was probably two and three quarters three percent and if it just happens to be coming due this year and they have a loan to value of north of 70 percent you know they're screwed Mm. yeah it's funny we had a we had a guest on here uh, that was a couple of a couple of episodes ago uh, on a roundup that was actually talking about uh, an experience at a, a very specific type of real estate conference, which was multifamily, and everyone was basically running around uh, trying to get one year term loans. And you know, he's trying to find out, well, why why just one year? And the idea being that, well, the Fed is going to cut, you know, towards the end of the year, and we'll be okay if we can just secure this year financing. So it's just fun, funny to hear you call out that exact sector as well. Just imagine the the the, the developer in twenty twenty. Uh, that got a construction loan and just assume that when the project would be done by 2022, 2023, he'd be able to convert it into a regular loan and rates probably wouldn't be that much different. Mm. Well, uh, the construction loan was probably priced, as I said, you know, two and three quarters, three. And now he's, that person's probably paying seven to eight on the new loan. And uh, whatever he penciled out or she penciled out, uh, is not the way things are, are, are going this year. So there's gonna be a lot of pain for over-levered um, people in commercial real estate that have, has debt due this year. Yeah. Uh, just for listeners, uh, that was the episode with James DeVolos. That was a roundup with, with Mark Yusko and I. So we'll drop the link to the, if you want to go check out his his story in the comments. Uh, Peter, I want I want to move on to your, your thoughts on uh, China reopening, right? So for, I'm sure, you know, listeners have largely been following along with this story, which is again, starting to gain a little bit of steam, but China for a long period of time has had a zero COVID policy. So there've been sort of intermittent, you know, intermittent awakenings, but then ultimately uh, the large, a large percentage of the population has been kept entirely locked down, you know, within the last a couple months or so, there's been sort of signs that there, there are cracks kind of forming in the political edifice over there, uh, which, which people are, people have finally had enough. So there's, there are whispers of a reopening in China. Uh, Peter, what are your kind of thoughts on, on the China reopening? I mean, there is a full reopening. Mm. It's going to take time to uh, fully um, get speed, probably the second quarter, third quarter, things should be back to normal. But uh, I mean, here's a country that's about 17% of the world's population with a $17 trillion economy, depending on how you want to value it, that has been handcuffed for the past three years to their apartments. Mm-hmm. And now they're finally let loose. 
And uh, I, I think it's a big story this year. Uh, I think that um, these people feel like they've lost three years of their life and they don't feel like losing any more of it. And they're going to be out there spending if, if, uh, if they can, with depending on their savings, which a lot of Chinese have saved a lot of money over the past couple of years and have high savings rates. They're going to want to travel, go out for dinner, go see the, uh, the local movie, want to buy a car. Uh, so I think the Chinese consumer is, is, is going to be let loose as the year progresses. And that, that's a big economic story, not just for China, but for the entire Asian region and a lot of uh, countries that, that export a lot of stuff there, particularly Germany, where China is their biggest trading partner, and other parts of Europe that do a lot of business with uh, China. Mm. How, how do you, uh, you know, one, one question that I have about the reopening is, you know, the impact that, that you see it having on, you know, a potential return to inflation, because, you know, in, in some senses, China reopening brings back a lot of supply, right? Like one of the big problems that's caused inflation, right, is sort of supply bottlenecks. On the other hand, you know, China's an enormous consumer of energy, right, of, of oil. Um, and a large part of why CPI has turned over, right, is sort of the lagging cost of, of energy, right? You see that as a, uh, you know, a decelerator basically on, on CPI. So I'm kind of trying to balance those two things out of my head. Like, how do you see the, the reopening? What's its impact on inflation? Well, with the supply side, China did a pretty good job of, of not being, not letting COVID really disrupt the manufacturing facilities. Mm. There was closed loop, people sleeping in factories. The, the supply side wasn't disrupted much mm. from COVID in China. It was more of, I can't get semiconductors. Mm. I, I can't get parts to my um, factory from from Vietnam, for example. Uh, it wasn't until when 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 COVID started to really flare in December, January, where people were calling out sick, that it was getting disruptive. But that was only short term. So I, I've heard this before from people like, oh, well, the China reopening is going to be good for the supply side. Well, like I said, the supply side wasn't disrupted much. Mm. A lot of the supply side, again, was semis because that, that these semis went into so many different things. Uh, and also, you know, shipping and, and, and uh, shipping costs that skyrocketed. So I, I don't see a full China reopening helping the supply side because it was never really hurt. Uh, and to your point about energy, in, in 2022, China consumed the least amount of barrels per day since 1990. <laughs> in 2023, they're expected to consume a record amount of barrels per day of, WT, of, of crude oil Brent. Um, or whatever they want to call it over there. So um, I think right now, commodity prices had a, 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 a bounce. Uh, people are still wondering how this is going to play out. But I, I think oil prices go much higher this year as we get into Q2, Q3, and China fully reopens. Mm. How about um, the kind of, you, you know, when we're looking at uh, sort of CPI in general, I mean, the Fed has been been very, very focused on sort of this new measure of inflation, right? They're calling it, uh, you know, core X housing services, right? Which is sort of a, you know, a, a, I think a way, right, for them to try to peer through some of the more volatile uh, short-term bounces of like food and energy and, and that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, is, is your view kind of, um, you know, maybe if we could separate out cyclical inflationary impulses versus more long-term sort of secular inflationary impulses is your view, which it seems is kind of the, the consensus in the market is that we're cyclically rolling over on inflation. I think most folks agree with that, but then where there's some disagreement is on the secular view of inflation over the long term. Are you like, first of all, in the camp of short-term we're cyclically rolling over, but then, you know, long-term, uh, you know, long-term, uh, secular view of inflation, do you think we've 
peaked here or is there, is there more to go? Well, we've clearly uh, rolled over. Mm -hmm. And if the economy continues to weaken, we'll roll over some more. The question is, is after the recession and, and when we get, uh, you know, we bottom out inflation, we get that bounce back. Are we looking at a, you know, a multi-decade one to two percent inflation trend? Mm. Uh, I don't think so. You know, breaking out inflation in between services and goods, you know, there was nothing ever transitory about services inflation. Mm. Services inflation in the 20 years leading to COVID, X energy, averaged just below 3%. Okay, 2.8%, but let's call it three. Services inflation, core services, I'm sorry, core goods, core goods, average zero. Hmm. And an average zero, well, technology is always a deflationary force, but has been since the history of time. But also what kept uh, uh, core goods prices at zero on average was cheap labor out of China. Uh, cheap labor in the US, uh, where labor got a pretty small piece of the profit pie. Uh, Just-in-time inventory was another uh, factor leading to zero inflation. Uh, but now you have no such thing as cheap uh, labor out of China. Uh, I think the, 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 the wage story in the US, while certainly plateauing and now modestly decelerating, uh, I think is going to be elevated for a period of time in terms of rate of growth. Uh, we now we have onshoring. That's just going to be more expensive. Uh, I think the, the, the supply side of, of commodities being challenged for the next five to 10 years is going to lead to higher commodity prices. And that services inflation, let's just say it just goes back to 3%. I think maybe it settles out at four because of higher wages. Mm. Um, and goods prices, if all you need is good prices to go up you know, one to 2%. And services prices going up maybe four, and you're going to have three to four percent type inflation in the aggregate uh, rather than one to two. And um, I think where you can get core goods prices that are going to be above two percent. Uh, but I, I think you have the ingredients for and just in time inventory is dead. My mind is all over the place now. So that's going to lead to higher prices because uh, you're going to need you're going to have higher inventory more working capital needs, less cash flow, higher prices. Uh, so another factor why goods prices are not going back to zero yep. on a sustainable basis. So all in, I, I think, a period of time of much less inflation than we've seen, but higher inflation than what we had seen pre-COVID. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you all for listening to On The Margin. Just wanted to give you guys a heads up about a conference that we have coming up in the new year called Permissionless. I'm sure most of you have been there last year. Uh, it is the cultural event of the year. We had over 5,500 people down in Palm Beach. This year, we are moving to Austin, Texas. You know what they say about Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> Uh, so last year, we had a really great lineup of speakers. We had the two co-founders of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bot. We had Chris Dixon. We had some of the folks that have been on the show a whole bunch of times, Jim Bianco, Dan Tapiero, just a phenomenal lineup of speakers. And you can expect the same this year. If you use Margin 10, you'll get 10% off on a ticket. Again, that's Margin 10 because I love you guys so much. Click the link at the bottom of the show notes. Hope to see you there in person. Yeah. So, so what do you think? Uh, how do you think the Fed is going to respond to that? Because Powell has been very clear in his pressers that we want to return inflation, headline inflation, to the 2% target that we've historically had for a long period of time. What, what, what if there's a world where you know inflation, because of all the reasons that you sort of just mentioned, wants to sit at 4%? The Fed kind of has two options there, right? They can either readjust their target or they can kind of continuously 
try to fight that right by impacting the demand side of things, which do you think is the more likely outcome? Well, we're going to get to 2% or less inflation in a recession. Mm. So let's just talk about after the recession. Yeah. Uh, or in a non-recessionary environment, where does where is inflation going to settle out at? And yeah, it's going to be a big problem for the Fed mm. because of these you know, external dynamics that have changed uh, on, on the good side. And on the services side, you still could see when, when rental price increases, which are slowing, sort of settle out. They'll still be up 3 4 5% a year as they settle out. Tuition prices are still going to be elevated, particularly if we start getting rid of student debt. Uh, medical care costs are only going to continue to uh, perpetually rise. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a really a, a, a tough situation for the Fed where you know, reality um, of, of not getting to 2% sustainably, I'm not talking about a month here, month there uh, on the downside, but I'm talking about sustainably and, and whether they are forced to sort of change the target. But you know, the target's a, a ridiculous thing anyway. Um, but I, I do think that they're going to have an issue. But I think it gets to the point of, if I'm right, that inflation is going to remain elevated for a period of time, that means an interest rates are going to remain elevated. And that outside of a recession, w- rates are not going to be low for a long time like we were used to. We're in a new world here, and we're not going back to the previous one for a while. Hmm. I have a, uh, you know, uh, I just heard you use the word recession, but, you know, I've, I listened to Janet Yellen. She said, we, we don't have any recession because, uh, you know, we're at a 50-year low in terms of unemployment. So I'm, that's kind of a little, little, little funny jab there, but you know, I, I would be curious. Well, let me say one thing to that. Yeah. Janet Yellen, um, you know, the PhD that she has, uh, all one has to do is look at a chart of the unemployment rate going back to World War II mm. and overlay that with recessions. And you can see every single time the unemployment rate bottoms on the cusp of a recession. So when I heard Janet Yellen say that, I thought, wow, here's just, you know, not understanding history at all. Mm. Now, because, you know, I, I don't mean to sound irreverent here. Like I don't have, I, first of all, I think it would be very hard to be a public policy, uh, you know, official in the U.S. I, I get that large, in large part, these people are trying to do their best. They have a very difficult job. On the other hand, sometimes you do get these statements, uh, you know, n- not to pick on one in particular, but sometimes you hear this stuff from Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, she'll say this stuff about, you know, it tends to be around inflation and the prescriptions for inflation. You know, it's, oh, it's just companies price gouging, you know, and we might have to implement price caps. And it's like, come on. I mean, it's like the first thing they teach you in economics 101, right? That, you know, price caps don't work. It's not companies that are price gouging. But and yet you kind of get these, uh, these repetitions coming from politicians. And I'm personally in the camp that I give these people a lot of credit. I, I think they're uh, smart. I don't fall into the camp. It's what are they thinking? They're just dumb or they must not be educated or something like that. So what is your internal thought process when you see Janet Yellen say something like that? Because clearly she's a smart person or, or do you think she just missed this one? Well, she, as, as Treasury Secretary, you basically are the salesperson for the economic policies of the administration you work for. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you always have to spin the, the economic environment in a positive way. Now, that could hurt if you're wrong. Janet Yellen was out there saying, oh, inflation's transitory because she was basically being the, she was the pitch person for the administration. And, but you know, that, that bit her cause she was dead wrong. 
And what she said now that you can't have a recession with the unemployment rate where it is, you know, she's going to be dead wrong on that too, because that's when, like, as I said, is the beginning of one. So I, I just think that they're in this very tough situation of not really politically allowed to be realistic. Mm. But that, that's disturbing too. Like they, they, are, they, they have to put on a happy face and, and not be honest with, with the American people all for pol- political reasons. Elizabeth Warren, you know, I go back and forth, like, is she just economically ignorant or, you know, she's just playing to her, to her base and always blaming somebody else and that Washington does no wrong and that every ill that comes our way has to be the private sector. Mm. So is is your then sort of contention looking at, because the, the Fed has been paying a lot of attention to the labor market as well, right? Um, and I think that's why the market reacted so strongly to the strong jobs report, which was saying, you know, Powell has been very clear in saying that we're going to need to see some more slack in the labor market before inflation turns around and therefore they can, uh, you know, do what the market wants and, and start uh, cutting rates instead of hiking them. So, you know, is... Is, is the idea basically that there's just a very long lag, right, in between when a change in monetary policy is initiated versus when versus when you actually start to see it in markets or have that effect come up in the economic data. And then the unemployment rate is kind of at the end of that long series of processes. So is your thought that we just haven't quite seen that, that hasn't fully played out yet? Um, and if so, like how much longer uh, do you think we're going to need to wait before we start to see the unemployment rate move? Well, it takes time to work its way through. Mm-hmm. Now, Keep in mind, interest rates affect the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy initially. Big ticket items, a home and a car that most people have to borrow money to finance. Mm. So when you get a sharp rise in interest rates rather quickly, you have an immediate effect on a new buyer. Mm. If you already own a home and you have a a 30 year fixed rate, well, you can care less where mortgage rates are going, assuming you're not planning on moving anytime soon. It's that first-time buyer. So there's an immediate effect there. But as we talked about earlier, loans that are coming due, they don't all come due in, in, in one month. Right. They're going to come due as, as the months and quarters progress this year into next. So if my loan is not coming to, to due until October, uh, where oh, I'm okay until then. I'm not, my, my business is not affected yet. But right. come October, if interest rates are still at current levels, uh, well, now I got to start allocating more of my cash flow to paying down and pay, paying uh, my interest expense. So that's why this takes time to work its way through to the broader economy that has become very dependent on borrowing to generate economic growth. Yeah. Now, maybe this would be a good time to sort of transition into earnings in general, because uh, that's also like uh, on the on the lift when monetary a change in monetary policy gets initiated. Uh, that is definitely something that we've been sort of waiting to see. Uh, you know, the last times I looked at earnings estimates for for Q1, they were trending lower, right? There's kind of that that constant economist survey and it's 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 trended lower and lower. But I think right now we're at what about zero, right? So, so not much, uh, not much growth. What, what are your thoughts on earnings for for this coming quarter? Um, well, earnings for the fourth quarter are now forecasted to be down. Mm. And I think earnings for the full year 2023 will be down year over year. Mm. Uh, that is because of um, mostly a hit to profit margins. Mm. But also keep in mind, um, if, if inflation starts to con- where it continues to roll over, inflation has been the main driver of revenue growth. Yeah. If you're a consumer products company, 
inflation was all your revenue growth as volumes actually were down. So you're going to see as inflation falls, revenue growth is going to slow. And the two biggest drivers of profit margin expansion over the past 10 years, where profit margins essentially doubled from its its median long-term average of about six, went to 12. Uh, now it's back to, well, now it's beginning to come off. Uh, one of the two of the main drivers outside of the corporate tax cut in 2017 was low interest expense and low labor costs. Mm. Well, interest expense is obviously now higher and labor costs are now running about double the pace pre-COVID. So I expect profit margin degradation to continue. Uh, let's take the, the very positive payroll number we had. Well, if that number was real or anywhere close to being real, at the same time, economic growth is flatlining, excuse me, at best. Well, that implies productivity is, is, is falling sharply. And it also means that profit margins are falling sharply. If my labor costs are up here, but my business is slowing to this sort of growth rate, that's a squeeze on profit margins. Mm. Now, do you think that happens uniformly across the economy or are there are specific sectors that you see being impacted more, struggling more in the current environment? Well, it'll, it'll at least higher labor costs will mostly affect the service sector. Yeah. Uh, service companies, labor costs are a bigger part of their cost base, particularly relative to manufacturing, where manufacturing integrates a lot of automation into their business. Mm. Uh, so to, to sort of segregate it out by that, yeah, service companies would mostly get affected. But on the interest rate side, you know, any company that has floating rate debt is going to get impacted regardless of what sector you're in. Mm. Now, you know, the other the the last sector that I want to ask you about here is just sort of big tech in general. So tech has gotten absolutely smoked uh, in 2022, you know, including the big the big sort of fang stocks. And, you know, you, you said, you know, before one of the first things to get impacted by higher rates is the big expenses like a house or a car. But in this new age of forward guidance and, uh, you know, the wealth effect, which has become, you know, sort of canon to think at the Fed, um, we, we've also seen businesses that have been positively impacted, uh, you know, by a low interest rate environment. They have been some of the ones that have gotten hurt the most when the interest rates started to hike up, which is these sort of tech stocks. So I don't know if you have any specific uh, thoughts on the tech sector, if you think there's going to be mean reversion or if the pain is still going to continue. But I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on sort of the wave of layoffs that we've seen across that? Well, technology generally, uh, if, you, if you capture a, a technological trend early on, you know, growth rates are incredible. And um, you get these incredible multi-year moves. Um, but in, in this kind of environment, and now those moves were exaggerated through cheap money and, and, and very high multiples that people were willing to pay on that growth. But now you have slowing economic activity, so slowing demand for that technology, at the same time, a lot of that multiple froth or the froth on those multiples have come out. Mm. So technology stocks are great when growth is good and technology stocks are not so great when growth is not so good. And a lot of these growthy stocks transition to value stocks because a transition from a growth stock to a value stock is many years of, of just sort of malaise. Mm. where these stocks just are great trading stocks, but the days of secular um, sort of growth rates in, 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 in the equity uh, is, is gone. And that's why you get sort of these flat fallow periods, long periods of time where tech stocks on the heels of, of a great period of time, then just sort of do nothing for a period of time as they sort of grow into uh, this, this, more, this newer 
reality. Uh, but some some areas of tech, you know, the, the growth rates are going to be pretty strong for years to come. They just got way ahead of themselves in terms of multiples. And those multiples uh, have come back to earth and, and probably need to mean revert still on the other side. Yeah. Just as we saw from 2000 to 2002. Yeah. I mean, Amazon's revenues doubled from 2000 to 2002, but that didn't stock, stop the stock from falling 90%. Yeah, it's a very good point. You know, some of the on some of the big uh, like the Fang stocks, uh, although Fang, I'm not even sure works as an acronym anymore. Uh, but you know, they 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 actually don't look wildly unattractive. I mean, uh, Meta or or Facebook, you know, they had a a very positively received earnings uh, just this last week, um, and I, I think part of the reason that was positive is because there was a lot more signaling of you know they're increasing their stock buyback program. There were more mention, mentions of uh, efficiency than you know. Reality Labs, which is their metaverse unit, um, but that PE is trading in a relatively, at least for you know a, a fast-growing tech stock like Meta has historically been a relatively attractive range. Um, just curious to to point out maybe that transition of growth to value is happening. Well, it, it, it certainly has happened. Uh, it's now a value stock, mm-hmm. but the problem with the value stock is it correlates with a slower rate of growth. Mm-hmm. So Facebook, the, the the heady days of growth for them is over. Mm-hmm. You know, they already have what 2 billion users. There's 8 billion people in the world. Yeah. How, how, what their, what's their growth rate, your user growth rate going to be from here? Well, it's going to just be slower than, than what it was. Hence it being trans, hence it having transitioned from a growth stock to a value stock. Mm. But being a value investor, you know, you can have like sort of years in the woods of, of being a value stock. Mm. Um, I mean, look at Microsoft stock. It topped out in, in 2000. And then didn't regain its level of, of 2000 until 2013. That was 13 years sort of in the woods. And, but every year they grew revenue, they grew earnings. It's just that was their transition from a growth to a, a value stock. Then, of course, they found new engines of growth and became a growth stock again, mm. which is always possible for, for, for Meta. But um, it's, it's, it's a perfect example of sort of that transition that a stock makes. So here... Its stock has been unbelievable this year, but it's still down 50% from its peak. Mm. Yeah, well said. Um, Peter, I'd like to maybe conclude just by asking your opinion. You know, uh, it, it's come up a couple of times in, in interviews since uh, even just last week, but you know, there's this kind of idea that there's a return to animal spirits. So I actually interviewed uh, with my colleague, Jack Farley. Jim Bianco came on the show, right? And was, I think his, uh, you know, not to put words in his mouth, but he very clearly said it actually on an interview here uh, where he was a little disappointed with uh, that particular presser. And, you know, it's 2021 all over again because, you know, you saw the response, right, of, of not not some of the best assets, right? You had like the Carvanas of the world uh, that were really soaring and and certainly some of the, the less reputable uh, uh, tokens over in crypto as well. Do you think that that's going to be the dynamic that we should be looking out for? Are we going to see a return to the 2021 sort of meme stock era? Oh, well, we've already returned. The, the mm-hmm. problem is, is that when you get there, it's usually, you know, the sort of the end of a speculative phase. Mm. Uh, but it, I guess it can go on. I mean, Bed Bath & Beyond, the day we're taping this, stock doubled today. Oh, wow. It, it, it's, it's, it's bond that matures in 2024 is trading at six cents on the dollar. And the equity is now worth $700 million. So yeah, the market is partying, or at least these areas of the market are partying like it's 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the cost of capital is, is quite different today than it was in February 2021, the last time they tried this. Mm. So y- your thought is that it's going to be short-lived, basically? 
the, the Bed Bath & Beyond equity is, is in, unless those bonds have an epic rally, um, that equity is probably not worth much. So um, there, there's no fundamental basis to be buying it, which tells me that uh, the speculative um, fervor still exists, won't mm. die, and everything the Fed has tried to do to kill it, uh, it, it just won't die. Yeah. So, you know, with the obvious caveat that time is a flat circle and people have uh, the memory of goldfish and eventually, you know, no matter how hawkish the Fed is and how draconian the measures are, uh, eventually, right, humanity will recover and hope springs eternal and we'll get the same shenanigans that we saw in 2021. Human nature doesn't change. Human nature does not time and time again. But the concern I think that most folks have in the meantime is that if those animal spirits return too soon, that actually might reignite sort of the inflationary uh, impulse that we've taken so much care to kind of stomp out. So I guess, do you, do you also share that concern? And, you know, what's your sort of handicap on, on that happening? Yeah, and that, that gets to the, the, the Powell press conference where he yeah. just fumbled the financial conditions answer to that question. Yeah. And how the way the markets are behaving uh, are just making his job that much tougher. And, and even look in Europe. Look at uh, Thursday, the Thursday that the ECB raised interest rates by 50, said they're going to raise another 50, confirmed that they're starting QT. There was a rip-roaring rally in the European bond market. Hmm. So the European bond market was easing just as the ECB was tightening. And you had since multiple days of tough talk by ECB members that finally got yields back up to about where they were before that Thursday meeting. So an example of the market that sort of ran away from central banks and said, you know, we don't believe you, to getting the central bank saying, hey, uh, don't ignore me this time. And uh, we'll, we'll see if Powell uh, says that in his upcoming speeches of whether he uh, gets a bit tougher relative to uh the, 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 the softness he portrayed at his press conference. Mm. So uh, I, I have to ask you, Peter, just while I've got you here. Uh, so this is going to air next week. We've obviously got a CPI uh, report coming in. Do you feel like dusting off your old crystal ball and, and giving us a little prediction just in terms of what we should be expecting there? Well, this is going to be the first month where the BLS uh, changed its uh, methodology in calculating CPI mm. to go back really w- one year uh, rather than two years in calculating sort of the base year. So that implies the, co- the comparisons are easy. So you're going to see a softening in CPI more so than you would otherwise without this, this alteration uh, in, in the calculation. Hmm. So PCE, which will come out a few weeks after, that's not being changed. Uh, but you could see, you're going to see a continuation in softness in CPI. There's no question. And... Um, but I think the, the markets are, are well anticipating. It's now we'll see to what extent with this new sort of iteration and calculation. Excellent. Uh, well, Peter, thank you so much, uh, as always, for being generous with your time. If folks want to f- uh, find out more about what you do, follow your work, uh, subscribe to, to the book report, uh, what's the best way to do that? So the, the wealth management business, uh, they can learn more about at bleakly.com. Mm. And if they want to read my, my daily commentary, they can go to bookreport.com. It's B-O-O-C-K report.com. They can trial it for free. And if they like it, they can subscribe. Excellent. I uh, actually am a personal subscriber of the book report and I highly recommend it. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate that. give it, give it a look, you guys. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. We'll have to uh, do it again soon. Yep. Same here. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers.